Create, connect, communicate. Create, connect, communicate. Magical, enigmatical, gift of gab, super, super agile, story, story from the space man. Come well lit. <laughs> Because I saw the weather forecast and I saw the rain coming back and I was like, oh no. <laughs> I know. This rainy season lasts like, I think, months. Yeah, like six months plus. Does it really? Well, uh, this year, this year it has been long. Yeah, yeah. It feels like it's just been a constant deluge. And right now it seems, yeah, we had a nice little respite um, over the weekend. Beautiful, beautiful weather, but it seems like it is back with full force now. Yep. So it's a good time to do things inside, mm -hmm. work on the computer without feeling too guilty. Exactly. Yeah. Jump on a podcast. There you go. Yeah. Slurp some tea. Slurp some tea. Slurp some tea. <laughs> so speaking of tea, we are here with a real live British national. Yeah, there aren't too many of us. I know, but there is one here, right? In the Space Lab at Firelight Chats. We are sitting here looking out the window at the uh, beautiful rain just falling down. Here with Chris Armsden, the man himself. Hi, good to be here. Yes, could you please introduce yourself for everyone? Well, my name is Chris Armsden and uh, I am British, although my accent might not indicate that much. I know you, know you sound a little Texan right now. It's it's all it's all over the shop, um, <laughs> and that is partly because I have not really lived in the UK for quite a number of years. I am an animation and visual effects professional, and so I've been doing this my whole career. Started off in the UK, but I have done this all around the world, including Argentina. Istanbul, Turkey, Los Angeles, America, California, uh, New Zealand, mm, go Kiwis, and Taiwan, and Taiwan. So how about we uh, get into that? So you said you are an animation professional. What does that mean exactly? Uh, well, it means that somebody pays me money to play around on the computer and make cool pictures. That sounds like a pretty good gig. Yeah. Yeah, right. When 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 it's good, it's good. <laughs> but of course, it's not without its downsides. Oh, um, you know, long hours in dark rooms. So it's definitely been a journey. So, did you always know that you wanted to be an animator, or maybe I should actually preface that with a question about what exactly in the animation field do you do, or do you specialize in? Hmm. Well, these days, because I have my own company now, there's less specialization and more generalism because as an animation company, we take on uh, whole projects. So that means doing kind of everything from start to finish. Mm. 
So everything from finding and meeting clients, working out what do they want to be done with animation, pre-production part, working out perhaps what story to tell with animation, working out the art side, and then into the production, which is the making part so these days definitely you know more generalist which is exciting it's also a lot of hard work but when i was doing this uh in los angeles and uh, new zealand i was specialized more in the lighting rendering and material side of things what do you mean by material side of things so in computer graphics in visual effects and 3d animation we create images and the images are produced through a process known as rendering. So that's taking the CG geometry, the shapes of things, and combining it with lights. But the lights need to interact with what the objects are made of. Mm. So that's the material side of things. So that's, you know, making wood or an object made of wood look like wood and an object that looks like metal make it look like metal. And this is done all in the software? All in the software. So nothing is real. Everything oh, only exists. No. In what are the you computer. telling me now, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> Animations are not real. It's not real. Oh no. Even though oh. it might look real, mm -hmm. you know, when you go see Avengers or something, mm. um, it looks pretty real these days, but more often than not, it's a couple of guys against a green screen pretending. So what you are telling me is that you are a magician. I have been called that. Oh, nice. <laughs> so when you started your career, I think you mentioned Argentina first. Is that where you started out your professional career? So coming from the UK, I started off in, in London, in the UK. Mm. Did that for a number of years, working for companies like Double Negative and the Moving Picture Company. And after a number of years in London, I kind of grew, I suppose, a bit weary of London and wanted a change. So I started to look for opportunities elsewhere. And, you know, I, I am perhaps a bit of a contrarian, I like to do things a bit differently. And, you know, most people, I think, have uh, particular places that they would go, mm. like these big hubs of animation, visual effects. Right, like Los Angeles. Like Los Angeles. Yes. Um, but this opportunity came up in, in Argentina, in Buenos Aires. And I was like, that sounds cool. I've never been there. So let's do it. Nice. So how old were you at this time when you, when Buenos Aires, Argentina was beckoning? That would have been probably 24, 25, something like that. Okay. Yeah. And how long did you stay there? Originally it was going to be for a year plus. There was a company that I joined that was working on their first animated movie. So they were producing this thing called Gatero, hmm. which is uh, Spanish for cat. Cat. Okay. Cat. Oh, gato. Oh. Si. So the, the character is, is, is a cat. And so the character is called Gatero. Okay. And yeah, so that was their IP. And I joined them as a uh, supervisor. This was also 2007. Hmm. So I was with the company for about three or four months and then everything started to kick something off. Something happened in 2008. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> some, something happened. <laughs> and so, you know, the investors of the movie pulled out. Oh, wow. And so it was like, okay, this is not going to happen. 
So I might as well just uh, go back to the UK and find the next place. So if people are not aware, 2008, we had a pretty big financial crisis that was kind of predominant in the United States, but obviously that has ripple effects all around the world. Um, so you definitely felt the effects of that in Argentina. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I came back to the UK and I actually had another job lined up. So I organized one pretty quickly. Uh, and that was going to be based in Jerusalem. Whoa. In Israel. In Israel. Same sort of deal. It was a company out there that was working on their first animated uh, film. Something to do with uh, plants. 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 Okay, yeah. okay, okay. And two weeks before I was due to start with mm. them, you know, I had an email. Sorry, we're going to have to, uh, you know, rescind this, this offer because same deal because of the financial crisis that was happening. Their investors for their film pulled out as well. Oh, wow. Okay. So it was like, okay, well. So you didn't even have a chance to step foot in Jerusalem? Nope. No. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, which, you know, it's uh, kind of sad because it w would have been very interesting. Yeah. Um, so another place that I was in contact with when I let them know that I was now a free agent, mm. they were like, sweet, come join us. So that's how I ended up in Istanbul. Istanbul, Turkey. Wow. So how long did you stay in Istanbul? So I was there for about four months. Mm. And during that time, I was in conversations with DreamWorks Animation and they ended up giving me, you know, a, a good offer. And so I had to go back to this company and be like, oh, sorry, guys. You know, I... You had to rescind your offer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I had this great opportunity, you know, working for DreamWorks, you know, uh, maybe there's some way we can work it out. Wow. And they were like, well, we, we understand yeah, it's DreamWorks. It's it happens to us. <laughs> oh, wow. So you're only working there for a couple months um, and then you got this competing offer at DreamWorks and you decided to take it. Yes. Yep. Yeah, you can't turn that kind of offer down. Right. So you uh, spent a couple months in uh, Istanbul, Turkey, and then you decided to fly to Los Angeles. Yep, yep. Came out to Los Angeles to Burbank. Yes. And uh, enjoyed four, four years out there. So this is where you start to settle down. Get settle serious. A little bit. A yeah, little bit. A little bit. <laughs> Los Angeles is, a, is an interesting place. <laughs> mm-hmm. A uh, lot, a lot of great things, you know, amazing things. Oh, you know, there, there's there's aspects about it as well that kind of suck. Yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I grew up in Southern California, so of course I am very well aware of LA and the trappings of LA. So, could you tell us from your perspective what are the downsides of working and living in LA? Downside for sure was you know the traffic. Mm -hmm. I was perhaps a little bit smart or maybe just lucky, one of the two, in that I was able to get an apartment that was actually quite close to work. So my commute to work was like maybe a mile. A mile away. That's very close. Which is close. You know, mm -hmm. That's great. Because I moved out to the States, to Los Angeles, being unable to drive. 
Wow, what does that mean? Being unable to drive? Yeah, I did not have my driver's license. Oh, wow. Okay, so legally. Yeah, yeah, legally. <laughs> um, because in the UK, living in London, you didn't need to drive. You know, great public right, transport. public transportation. But and LA doesn't leave, have that. Didn't, didn't have that. So, you know, for the first few weeks, months perhaps... Uh, I was learning, um, but I had to still get to work somehow. So, you know, I found this place that was close by and at least then I could walk to work. Oh, wow. Um, and then, you know, I just stayed there for the majority of my time. Other people, you know, they lived in like different cities. You know, they were in Pasadena. Mm. And so then that's like a 20, 30 minute drive, mm -hmm. depending on traffic. Some people drove in from Santa Monica, you know, God help them. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's not easy, so, that drive. Right, right. Every day, twice. Right, exactly. I didn't have to deal with Los Angeles traffic, at least for my commute. But like my best friend also lived in Los Angeles, down in Culver City. He was mm -hmm. working for Sony at the time, and I hardly ever saw him. It was it was too far away. Too far. <laughs> it was like let's meet up. Oh, yeah, it's going to take us an hour. Yeah, forget it. See you next week. Yeah. yeah, let's let's try again. Next month, maybe. Right. Exactly. Huh. Okay. So, as people are probably well aware, DreamWorks Animation is a very famous uh, animation studio uh, around the world. So, how was that experience? You said that you had worked there for four years. Mm -hmm. So. I had the privilege of working on, I think, some of their best movies. You know, some of their movies were kind of, yeah, not so good. <laughs> um, you know, they, they didn't sort of compare very favorably against the enemy, the competition, um, Pixar. Mm -hmm. But I was very fortunate to work on, yeah, some of their really good ones, mm. like how to Train Your Dragon. Yes. Kung Fu Panda 2. Mm-hmm. And The Crudes. The Crudes. Which, if you haven't seen, is a good movie. It's about a family of cave people. What do you like about that film? Well, for me, it was a very good experience working on it. In film production, animation production, visual effects, there is often a huge amount of work to be done. And often, not enough time. Mm. So production schedules get squeezed and people have to work overtime, you know, work many, many hours to get it done because the schedule is compressed. Mm. For the crudes, originally it was going to be a compressed schedule, but due to some other factors, different movies coming out and everything, rather than it being like a, I think it was like going to be a nine month production schedule, which was going to be like really crazy busy. Mm. They changed it to like a two year production schedule. Mm. So we had time to do things properly mm. and to take our time and do so with a much smaller team. Because, you know, if you've got like a ton of work that needs to be get done in a, in a short amount of time, all you can really do is just throw bodies at it. Right. And, you know, get it done that way. Then you run into sort of issues with kind of scheduling and, and resource management and mm. all that kind of jazz. But when you can do this kind of like slow burn over a long period of time with this much smaller crew, you know, everyone can really get to know each other. Um, and it's a much more kind of friendlier, intimate kind of environment. And you have the time to do things, yeah, properly. Right. And if you need to develop software to do it, because I'm a technical person as well. Mm. Um, 
uh, I develop software. Yeah, that allows you to do that. So does that experience working on crudes, was that different from Kung Fu Panda or How to Train Your Dragon in terms of the production schedule? Yes, yeah, yeah. How, How to Train Your Dragon was definitely a compressed schedule. Mm. So it was like busy, busy all the time. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Kung Fu Panda as well. Uh, Kung Fu Panda, I think, was kind of like a normal kind of schedule. Mm. And that was kind of, yeah, okay. Uh, I wasn't on it for, you know, uh, the whole movie length. But yeah, my time on there was, was fine. And then to go on to the crudes, where it's like... You can take your time and, and do things properly. Mm. Oh, great. Yeah, so how does that happen? There were some uh, big donors supporting this because we started out the podcast talking about financing, right? I mean, a couple of your early experiences were halted because of a lack of funding. Mm. How important is money and funding in this animation process? Very. You know, movies are expensive things to create. Um, And animated movies are just as expensive. So DreamWorks... When I joined, they were going through like a big hiring process Mm. because they were looking to create, I think it was five movies every two years. Oh, wow. So, you know, make a lot of movies. And, you know, the story of DreamWorks is a little bit sad because, you know, when you create a movie, it might cost, you know, 100 to $150 million for one of these kind of movies. It's a lot of cash. Right. So you need these films to be a success. And if they're not, then it's like, uh oh. Yeah. And so they did have these successes with like Shrek and How to Train Your Dragon. But then some of these films were also not such a success. Mm. The Guardians, I think it's called, or Rise of the Guardians, uh, which is actually a pretty cool film. Like it tries to do something different, which is to make more of a darker kind of animated film. So they took, you know, a big risk perhaps in doing that. And sadly, it didn't pay off. So due to some of these films, because, yeah, when I was there, it was Rise of the Guardians didn't do that well, and Turbo uh, didn't do that well. Turbo was one about a racing snail. So then they went back, I guess, the executives, and thought, yeah, well, maybe we need to rethink the projects that we do. We shouldn't be doing so many uh, Hmm. and throwing all these kind of resources at it. So let's cut back on the movies that we're doing, and the ones that we're doing just, you know, have them smaller crew, long period of time, so we can really work through and make sure that it's as good as it can be. So that's how that kind of uh, happened. So you think managing the size and the scale of the project is the most important thing? Or what are some other important factors to creating a successful animation? And I think that might be part of the problem as well, right? Is the definition of a successful production because some might be a critical success, meaning, you know, the critics, the fans might really love the film, but it might not do so well commercially as well. So there's a lot of things to balance. What do you think about all that? Yeah, I think it's a difficult thing to to balance it definitely you know money plays a big part in it 
And you don't necessarily have to spend a lot to have critical success. You have, you know, productions like Pixar and DreamWorks movies, expensive, big budget, you know, and you can really see the quality in there. Like the detail mm. is amazing. But you also have movies like Despicable Me, which was made for a way smaller budget. I think it was made for like 40 million. Oh, wow. Compared to like 150 or 200 million dollars. Yeah. So we're like way smaller. But, you know, they made something that people really liked. Mm. And I think it went on to make something stupid like $600 million or $800 million. And so that really catapulted that studio into the, into the forefront. Because at the end of the day, ultimately it means what matters is the profit you can make mm -hmm. you know, from it. So if you spend you know, $100, $200 million, it's okay if it makes a billion dollars. <laughs> Not bad. Not bad. Yeah. But if it only makes perhaps, if it costs $150 million and you only make $200 million, mm. then the return on investment is, you still haven't not, lost it, but it's, yeah. it's a bit less. Right. But if you can make it for like $50 million and it makes $250 million, then well, that's, that's better. Right. Yeah. That's always the difficult part, right? Balancing the budget with the return on investment. And that's a very difficult thing to predict. Very, really difficult. And this is, I think, why Hollywood has kind of gone into like a bit of a rut, hmm. a creative rut. So you, you can't sort of, you know, you shouldn't paint it with a broad brush. But, you know, Hollywood, uh, these movie studios, they want, you know, return on investment. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to fund the movies that have a much higher likelihood of being a success so you know when it's going to cost you know 100 million dollars plus you know what do you choose do you choose the unknown option or do you choose the superhero one or the sequel yeah so that was actually going to be my next question which is is there some kind of secret formula hidden away kind of like a cheat sheet about things that will not necessarily guarantee success but there is a higher likelihood of success i guess you kind of mentioned a couple of those like a sequel or superheroes is there anything else that animation studios or animators know well the, the secret really is make something good <laughs> But of course, yeah, what, what is good? What are people going to pay for? And that is, that is the big question. Mm. There's a lot of things out there in the world that I scratch my head at. And I'm like, <laughs> how does that? How did that make a billion dollars? How did that make a billion dollars? Or, <laughs> you know, how is this thing a, such a success? Uh, I still feel young inside. You look young as well, I Chris. I, I, I try to take care of myself. I, <laughs> I drink tea every day. Exactly. Uh, enjoy the sun when there is sun. <laughs> you know, I don't feel old, mm. quote unquote old. <laughs> but then there's a whole genre of online streaming where it's like, you know, people play games and then people watch the person playing games and then they pay money to watch the person play games. Mm. And that to me, like, just kind of blows my mind. Right. It's like playing games, fun. Watching someone else play games, eh. Yeah, so I don't, I don't get that. It's a new phenomenon, right? 
But those streamers, you know, they make a lot of money. I know. It's like, what? Don't get. So, speaking of that, what other kind of changes do you see? Because that is, I think, kind of a, a huge technological shift. These shifts towards other competing technologies like video games and whatnot. Do you think this spells doom or trouble for animation? In general, do you think that they're going to face, you know, harder and harder competition in the future with these competing technologies? Yes. <laughs> Short, <laughs> Short answer. answer. Yes. Um, and this has been part of the problem that DreamWorks and others have encountered. Mm. So, yes, you could make a lot of money at the box office and have, you know, success. Cool. But the bigger money really came from, like, DVD sales. Mm. In the past. In the past. Okay. And DVD sales and, and merchandising. So, as people stopped buying DVDs, as people went towards, like, streaming, then, you know, those DVD sales, you know, really dried up. And so then you really are dependent on it being a success at the box office. So, if it doesn't have that success, then, uh-oh, you don't have that sort of second chance through DVD sales. That's everything, right? I mean, the whole landscape seems to be changing so much from, you know, what you're mentioning, the DVD sales, merchandising, these kind of things that no longer really exist anymore. And then you also mentioned if those forms of revenue aren't there, the animation studios in the past relied on the box office. But as we know as well, at least in the States, that people going to movie theaters is on the decline as well. So, you know, and especially again with the rise of technology, making it very easy for us to set up a home studio at home, right? So we don't go to the movie theater anymore. Um, it really does seem like there's a lot of headwinds for not only animation, but just kind of these big box studio companies. Yeah. So, you know, these companies are kind of faced with this predicament mm. of, you know, how do we create a product that we're good at creating mm. animation within this changing landscape? So, you know, I think DreamWorks ended up doing some deals with Netflix and that's sort of been quite successful. They invested in doing uh, like more TV things, all the TV stuff with, with Netflix and they've got like a big catalog of stuff out there. Uh, I think that's been successful. But, you know, DreamWorks was this independent company. In the end, they, uh, the CEO, Jeffrey Katzenberg, he sold it to Comcast Universal. Is this a trend that you see, this kind of uh, consolidation of these smaller animation studios uh, into bigger ones? Mm -hmm. And do you think that will continue into the future? Yes, yeah. Uh, you know, we've seen this in, in animation because you need generally big pockets to make these kind of things. Visual effects studios as well. So the companies that produce the animation for the live action movies. I don't think there's any real quote unquote independent or smaller ones really left. Mm. Yeah, except for the like the smaller, you know, more boutique right. shops. Mm. Um you know, the company I started off working at, DNEG, Double Negative, that was bought by an Indian company, I think Reliance. They called it a merger, but the Indian company bought them. Right. Acquired all the assets and, and their name. Uh, Frame Store, I think, is owned by some other big corporate entity. MPC is owned by uh, Technicolor. 
big kind of uh, media services company. ILM is owned by Disney. Weta Digital, that is... So a share was sold to Sean Parker. The is that Napster? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. right. Okay, the Napster yeah, billionaire. They were right, right. You guys might have to Google that. That was a while back. So he, yeah, sold like a share to Sean Parker, um, who then brought on a new CEO, Prem Akaraju. And so now Weta Digital has been going through a lot of changes themselves, one of which has been to sell off the Weta Digital name and the technology to Unity, which is a big billion dollar technology company developing, you know, technology. Mm. So, yeah, I do see this kind of consolidation, you know, these big corporations and tech companies just buying up whatever they can, mm. um, especially because these big tech companies, they need, you know, they're always thinking about the next big thing. So what's really the next big thing for them is going to be the whole metaverse mm. thing. Right. And so, you know, the idea being who can control the metaverse will control the world. <laughs> right. Maybe. <laughs> That's what know. they say. <laughs> Do you think that this kind of consolidation necessarily leads to business decisions trumping that creative freedom and creative license? I think... At least from a visual effects point of view, I don't think anything has really changed because visual effects, you know, has always really been a kind of work for hire type mm. type situation where they are hired by the film production companies to make the visual effects. Mm -hmm. So they can produce work, uh, but it's kind of work to order. Mm. you know for the film and the main visual effects supervisor the director they're the ones deciding how it should be so you know there's always like some degree of creative freedom you know but the end decision is always somebody else so you could create something really cool but if they don't like it uh, it doesn't matter right you're not too worried about that yeah I, i'm not sort of too worried mm. um dreamworks from what I understand now, you know, is kind of going through a bit of a revival. You know, they're producing cool uh, movies. The latest one, I think, has just come out. The Bad Guys, I think it's called. Mm. And that looks really nice. Mm. I haven't seen it myself yet, but the art style looks really good. There's definitely, you know, creative freedom there. And for them, I think having the, the backing of you know comcast universal a lot of money yeah then you can have a bit more creative freedom right money buys that creative freedom yes yeah and as long <laughs> as they're kind of happy to kind of give that freedom they, you know i have no idea the insides of what it's like there now but yeah quite possibly comcast universal's just like just make cool stuff mm. and uh here's the money to do it um you mentioned uh, weta digital can you explain a little about that and i believe you also had an opportunity to work for weta digital yes yeah so uh weta digital now called weta effects so they sold the weta digital name along with the technology to to unity mm. um but yeah originally called weta digital that was started off by peter jackson the director of Lord, Lord of, the of the Rings, yes. And he, I think, was very smart and maybe kind of took on like the George Lucas approach of creating the companies that he needs to work on his projects. 
So for Star Wars, you know, George created ILM and Skywalker Sound and all these production companies, presumably to ensure that his high standards are met. But then also, you know, he has that kind of creative freedom over everything and, you know, the, the financial kind of resources as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think Peter Jackson took the same approach. And so he has a lot of different companies for working on his films. Mm. And Weta Digital was the visual effects, or is the visual effects component uh, of it. Of his empire. Yeah. <laughs> and it really is an empire. Right. <laughs> in, in Wellington, New Zealand, um, it's all kind of based out at Miramar, which is uh, a little peninsula part of the city. And yeah, you can't throw a stone without hitting you know, another business or part of that uh, movie empire. And it's what allowed him to become a billionaire. Yeah. So, you know, exactly. It works. works. (laughs) New Zealand, was that after Los Angeles or did you make another stop between those two destinations? So I left Los Angeles uh, originally to kind of go traveling for a bit mm. you know travel was my like my big love uh, exploring the world nice and everything and so you know after four years in los angeles you know i was kind of asking the question life here is good blue skies warm weather you know all the things that you could kind of need or, or want there mm-hmm. sunny you know? southern california yeah uh just you know don't go to the beach because it's too far you know? <laughs> it's more than a mile away more than a mile away but yeah after four years it was like i was asking the question of is this home uh, does this feel like home for me and the answer that i really came to was like no doesn't feel like home and so i've always been one to i guess uh throw caution to the wind roll mm. the dice and see what lady luck may bring right so I did some travel uh, for a few months and then uh, went to New Zealand then. After the travels. After the travel. This was your first time in New Zealand? Yep. Okay. And how was that experience working in New Zealand? Uh, so far from home, but maybe a little similar culturally, possibly. Some historical roots. H- how was that experience? Well, yeah, New Zealand's a beautiful country. And yeah, culturally kind of very similar to UK. Mm culture as well so it everything felt very familiar very comfortable kiwis are you know a very relaxed bunch mm. kind of laid back yeah it's kind of very possible to have a great life there you know i was there for a year working on a particular project got to see new zealand got to do a bit of traveling um, a lot of working a lot of working so mm. at dreamworks you know we were doing like 40 hour 40-hour weeks, kind of very normal. Uh, in New Zealand, you know, Kiwis in their regular jobs, they're doing like maybe 30, 35. <laughs> um, at Weta, we were doing minimum 50. Wow. 50 hours. These laid-back people are working their butts off. <laughs> yeah, so like in normal jobs, it's kind of laid-back, kind of chill. But going back to the kind of the visual effects, you know, the work must get done. Right. And the only way you can really do it is throw bodies at it. Mm. Bodies and time. It's the way to create an empire, it seems. Yeah. So, you know, we were doing 50-hour minimums and we didn't really have to do too much beyond that Mm. for the particular thing that I was working on. But this was during the Hobbit days. Oh, the Hobbit. Okay. And 
some of my friends that were kind of really deep in production, then their deadlines were like super tight. And so on these kind of movies, on Avatar, on The Hobbit, there was so much work to be done and so much budget as well. They ultimately gave them sort of unlimited overtime the ability to do as much overtime as you can wow uh just get it done so some people were doing 112 hours a week that's some crazy math right there right that's not much sleep not a lot so that is 16 hours a day seven days a week wow Pretty wow crazy. uh fortunately you know yeah people were getting paid for this overtime mm. and i think it's like you know, single time up to 60 hours. And then after 60 hours, it's like time and a half. And then maybe over 80 or 90 hours, then it's like double time. So there was this incentive to work. Even longer them. and longer hours. Yeah. Right. You know, no, no joke. Uh, it nearly killed some of them. I remember you actually told me a story about a motorcycle, a friend in a motorcycle. That's right. Yeah. A good friend of mine, he went out to work on uh, the Hobbit movies, uh, brought his wife and child, and he was doing these crazy hours, not having really time to see them because, you know, when he gets home, it's already late. They're in bed, sleep. And then in the morning, he was to work early. So not really seeing them. He's doing these hours. He doesn't buy a car because he's just out to do this project for mm. six months, nine months, a year. So he has a scooter to get around. Mm -hmm. Wellington is not a big place. And one night he falls asleep driving the scooter. Oh, wow. Crashes and breaks his leg. But fortunately, that's, you know, that's as bad as it is. Mm. Um, so bad... Fortunately, he wasn't killed because then, you know, he would have left an orphan, left a widow. Yeah. Um, but it was a real wake up call. Like, yeah, this is not healthy. This is not good. Um, after those Hobbit movies and, and everything, uh, I think the New Zealand government did put in some rules <laughs> to kind of stop this crazy overtime because it was making, you know, it's very dangerous and mm. making a lot of people sick. Right. Very dangerous. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. Okay, so the government did actually take some initiative to prevent something like that from happening again. Yes, yeah, they, they, I think the way that they did it was essentially the company's problem. Mm. You know, if someone, you know, gets injured because <laughs> it's, it's on like, you, it's on you. Right. <laughs> it's a liability thing. Right. That's a good way to clean up behavior. Yeah. Make people liable for, <laughs> for those things. So I think, you know, the, the, the big overtime, you know, it, I think it still happens. But yeah, they, they, they try to kind of keep it not as bad. But they've been, you know, busy at work finishing up on Avatar 2, which looks spectacular. And I'm sure it would be an amazing film, mm -hmm. um, just like the first one. And it's a testament to the, you know, the, the blood, sweat and tears and divorces <laughs> that it takes to make, you know, such an amazing you know, piece of art. Right. Beautiful kid-friendly animation and then broken families at home in the background. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes, right. Yeah. Some of these movies, they, they include in the credits, like uh, they call them like production babies. Oh, wow. So it's like the baby's born, you know, during production. 
Oh, that's um, funny. But yeah, they don't mention the production divorces. <laughs> that, that doesn't look so good on the final credits. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. So after um, this little stint in New Zealand, was this the last stop before coming to Taiwan? So after yeah, New Zealand, uh, did a little bit of travel, but then yeah, came to Taiwan. Mm. When you're so far away from home from the UK, you always wonder, am I going to come back to this part of the world again? Mm. So there's yeah, a bit of incentive to like do a little bit of travel in the, in the area, South Pacific. So yeah, did a bit of travel there, uh, visited like Vanuatu. Mm, nice. Super cool. Yeah. Close to Tahiti. Yes. Mm. And I went to also to French Polynesia. Mm. Beautiful. Yes. But otherwise, yeah, quite difficult to get to. Mm, yeah. So it's good to get it done while you're out there. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. Nice. And yeah, after that, that's when I came to Taiwan for the first time. Okay. So what brought you to Taiwan that first time? One of my bosses that I worked with at DreamWorks, she was working out for this studio in Taiwan. And she reached out to me and just said, hey, we would love for you to join us here in Taiwan. And I was like, I've never been to Taiwan. Mm. I'd looked at some pictures online. <laughs> like, oh, that looks beautiful. Mm -hmm. like, that looks cool. Uh, sure. Sounds like fun. And yeah, that's, that's all it takes to convince me. <laughs> Pretty easy. And so they brought me out to work for this company called Next Media Animation. And... Next Media, is that the conglomerate owned maybe previously by Jimmy Lai? Yep, that's the Of one. Apple Daily. And uh, yeah, we our last guest was actually from Hong Kong and we've mentioned Jimmy Lai. Ah, right. Uh, so he owns this media company in Taiwan or is it a joint venture with Hong Kong? Yes, yeah, there's like the next group. Yeah, based in Hong Kong and Taiwan. And they own, you know, the Apple Daily and Next Media and next tv mm. um yeah all of that stuff next digital yeah. mm -hmm. okay yeah yeah so the company was infamous famous <laughs> for creating these very interesting animations mm. so the idea that that he had was to use animation to tell stories visually when you don't have like video to, mm -hmm. to tell that story. Okay. You know, so if there's a plane crash or, you know, something happens, you can use animation to visually tell that story. Mm. That's a great idea. Yeah. Uh, and so they created this uh, animation studio to produce animation because it's news has to happen very fast. Mm. And so they became known as like the, the fastest animation studio in the world. Wow. Okay. Because they were producing a 30 second piece of animation in three hours or less. Wow. Crazy. So how long for the audience who is not familiar with this process, how long would that normally take? I mean, if you're doing something like, you know, how to train your dragon, mm. you know, you've got probably three months to do that. Three months to make a 30 second clip. Yeah, probably. <laughs> wow. Okay. And so to do that in three hours is quite an achievement. <laughs> so how is this humanly possible? 
in the sort of typical uh, Taiwan way mm -hmm. of just throwing bodies at it <laughs> and get people in, work them, work them hard. And uh, when they collapse, you know, just get, get in with Just the push them to the side and uh, <laughs> get a broom. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they were also looking to develop technology to make this process faster, cheaper, better. Mm. And so that's why they brought me out to develop a new real-time animation pipeline. This this is like six or seven years ago when Unreal, Unreal Engine, Engine yeah. which is a piece of software, was not as well used in this kind of space before. And so in some respects, we were pioneers these days. And so we had to develop the technology to, to do this. Mm. Uh, these days, you can just download Unreal Engine and all of that functionality that we were developing is now built into the engine and it's amazing and it's used everywhere. So going back to like an earlier question, you know, the technology tools have gotten better, higher quality, you know, uh, cheaper. Hmm. Unreal Engine is free. Right. Uh, the latest iteration, UE5, uh, is amazing. Mm. And the quality is yeah, just incredible. Right. And so this is what's used for doing, you know, visuals on like the Mandalorian on these big LED stages. So very cool stuff. Mm. So in that way, technology actually might free these more creative people to, to do things faster, to maybe expand their creative potential. Yes. Right. You know, in the past, you would need an army of people to create some of these things and some of the projects that i've seen that use unreal were made with a much smaller team in just like a few months and you're like wow how did they do that yeah they must have had a million people but, <laughs> but no, just it's one like, guy yeah so like the supercomputer <laughs> and and the 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 capabilities of modern computers is yeah quite incredible now when I started off in my career, ray tracing, which is a type of technology, was kind of too slow to be really used. Computers were a lot slower. And these days, even games are making use of ray tracing hmm. uh, because these latest graphics cards, RTX, are, are so powerful. Hmm. It's literally like having a supercomputer in your regular computer. Right. Ray tracing meaning light rays, or is this something else? Yeah, yeah, light rays. Okay. So this is why you know games that make use of ray tracing, movies, they look so realistic. Mm. You know, the quality is much better because the lighting is much better. You have the reflections coming off shiny surfaces. So it mimics how light works in the real world. Right. Yeah, that's a very underappreciated technical aspect of this kind of creative process, right? I mean, in regular films as well, or in photography, lighting is everything, right? In animation, you just have to create those things through the software. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, the computer just deals with zeros and ones, you know. Binary. And, you know, how do you go from that to Avatar? Mm. It's, it's, quite, it's quite the leap. You know, this is what kind of software is capable. Mm -hmm. Just layers and layers and layers. Yeah. Mm. So did you have any other memorable experiences working at that company? Well, yeah, I hadn't really done my research before I went there. <laughs> you know, I just trusted my, my, my boss and she was like, come out. And I was like, okay. Because, um, yeah, when I got there, 
and learned about the company, mm. I was like, oh, you're that company. Because wow. <laughs> I'd seen these animations and was like, oh, yeah, this is crazy stuff. And there was a, a famous video of a, I think she was like a, a writer or an editor who quit her job in a very famous way. She did like a, I guess, uh, like a TikTok type video hmm. before TikTok. Uh, she sings a song, it's about working late and my boss doesn't care, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, when I get there and I learn more about the company, it's like, oh, that company, wow. I mean, it, it was all good. You know, I uh, made a lot of friends and, you know, we had a good experience living in Taipei, living in Taiwan, uh, exploring around the island. So, yeah, I left with good memories. That was, I guess, yeah, one of the reasons why, you know, later coming back to Taiwan was a good, good option for me. Mm. So my guess, uh, according to this narrative, is that you took another vacation and traveled a bit after Taiwan. Is that is yes. that correct? Or did you end up just going to a next destination to work more? I did some travel. You did some traveling. Yeah. So this whole, you know, working in animation, visual effects around the world, it's very glamorous. <laughs> uh, very exciting. But, you know, when you... When you are this kind of nomad, then there are things that you gain, experiences, but there are things that you you lose as well. So, you know, I haven't lived in the UK for many, many years. Uh, I haven't seen my friends and family for several years now. Mm. And I, I miss them dearly. So those, you know, back home, you know, they've bought houses and had kids and things like that. And so, you know, I feel kind of bad that I've, missed out on sharing those experiences with them and during my time in uh, Taiwan my uh, mom got sick cancer mm. and uh, eventually passed away oh wow and so yeah I felt very guilty that you know I've been away from from home too long you know perhaps I should have you know, been at home more and you know would have spent more time with them Mm. Uh, and everything else so yeah that's when i kind of made the decision to really move back to the uk and spend time with my dad and uh, my brother as well that was the theory at least <laughs> what happened actually well yeah so yeah i moved back to the uk and moved back home and so there i am with my dad i'm like cool now we can spend some quality time together right quality father and son time yeah and he's like, what? What are you doing here? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I was kind of hoping for a slightly different reaction experience. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I haven't lived at home for a long time. So, mm. yeah, in the end, I think we just uh, kind of two different people. So, so it didn't really work out. Sounds like a good animation. Yeah. <laughs> a good story. And I think I, I moved back for like two weeks. Mm. And then, you know, the Everyone arguments. decided it, it wasn't. Yeah, no, not going to work. No. So then it was like, well, you know, I'm just going to go do some travel now. <laughs> yeah. So this was a good opportunity for me to kind of explore my home and the locale. So ended up doing a whole bunch of travel through Europe and 
seeing friends that I hadn't seen for a while, visiting amazing places. Like Europe is beautiful. Oh, yeah. Visiting countries that, yeah, never been, like Italy. How dare you yeah. not have gone to Italy? Really? <laughs> uh, and even kind of Wales and Scotland. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, places that are kind of right on the doorstep, but never been. Yeah, did did a whole bunch of travel. Did that for like six six months, six or nine months. Then got another job, which was back in New Zealand again. Oh, wow. So you went back all the way to the other side of the world. Yeah, yeah. They, they got back in contact and were like, hey, do you want to come back? You know, I had left the first time because, you know, I was feeling a bit burned out. Mm. The long hours. New Zealand, Wellington, in summer, beautiful. In winter, not so much. Mm. Kind of like here, but also way windier, way colder. Oh, wow. Okay. But you ended up taking that offer and going back, even though the weather is not so great in the winter and also you have bad memories of overworking <laughs> and uh, being absolutely exhausted. What made you decide to go back? Uh, I have a short memory. Yeah, I, I, I'd forgotten Amnesia. all the bad stuff. Dementia. Yeah. Uh, I'd forgotten all like the, the downsides, you know. I, I put on the, the rose-tinted glasses. Mm. And so then you remember the good stuff and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I can definitely yeah, go back. Sounds good. Yeah. You know, to its credit, you know, Wellington, like the lifestyle is very nice there. Mm. And Wellington is, I think, one of the most... I think it's a very beautiful place, mm -hmm. comfortable place. Mm -hmm. But especially now, you need also to have a lot of money. Mm, it's expensive. It has become really expensive. So ev everything costs a lot of money. You know, if you want to buy a house, it's like millions of dollars. Food, you know, I think we would spend $200 going to the grocery store. And you do that two or three times a week. You know? Oh, wow. It's like, where's the money gone? Yeah, right. All that overtime is gone Yeah, <laughs> with a meal. So, you know, the, the quality of life there, the standard is very high, but it also, you know, costs a lot. There's kind of a darker side to New Zealand that they kind of gloss over. You know, when you see these uh, commercials, pure, uh, pure New Zealand, in, in many ways, yes, mm. but... Comes it, at a cost. Comes at a cost. Like they'll show like these beautiful rivers and... Uh, the, mountains, the mountains, all the greenery. The yeah. Um, but... The rivers, for example, you can't swim in them anymore because they're all full of cow shit. <laughs> really? Yeah, they're, they're heavily polluted. Oh, wow, really? So it's a big problem, yeah. Okay. So, you know, they have all this space. They have a lot of, you know, good air, good, good grass. So mm. they have a lot of sheep and then they have a lot of cows. Uh, a lot of cows. Too many cows for <laughs> the land. Huh. So for a long time, it wasn't a problem, but... All throughout that time, it was just building up, like all that cow shit was just building up in, wow. in the soil. And in the kind of recent years, you know, now the, the soil can't hold anymore. Mm. And, and it's just going into the rivers. Too many cows. Wow. And so, yeah, the, the rivers are polluted. Right. I mean, New Zealand has some famous steak, right? I mean, New Zealand beef. Yeah, so yeah. I think it's just feeding that industry, which is essentially feeding the world's hunger for meat. Yeah, for meat and dairy. Right, right. So all the milk and milk powder for oh, export. Right, okay. But it's actually having very deleterious environmental impacts. Yeah. So 
uh, you know, up in up in Auckland, people talked about the rivers that they used to swim in, uh, you know, years ago. Can't swim in them anymore. You can't go to the beach anymore uh, or, or swim in the sea because there's a, a good chance that you will get sick from, you know, E. coli or whatever the mm, bacteria right. is. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that was your second stint in New Zealand was cow shit. Yeah, cow shit. Yeah, like it's it's unfortunate that I mean I suppose every place you know is going to have its downsides. But on the one one side, it's you know this side is like really good, and uh, you know then there's the downside. One of the downsides was yeah the the working was was long mm. again, and back then. Yeah, they were not so flexible on uh, kind of working working hours. In the end, it was like, you know, I love it here. You know, it's great. But again, I don't see a way to make it work mm. here. Like, you want to stay and buy a house, you're going to need a lot of money. Working at Weta pays a lot of money. So if you want to buy a house, then but, but working at Weta, doing these long hours and everything else... If you, if, if you can't do that, then how can you afford that kind of, you know, lifestyle? Right, uh, right. Again. So, yeah, then hard decisions had to be made. Yeah, I, I really needed a, a good break after all of that because, again, I was kind of feeling very burned out. It, it's kind of a shame because this is something which I, you know, I, I love. Mm. I love to create beautiful images out of nothing. I am a magician. Mm -hmm. uh, so came back to Taiwan the first time. Well, second, second time, time right. second time, 2019. Originally, yeah, just to take a break from it all. It's like I need to take care of myself to kind of regain my my balance, I suppose, mm. my, my center to refine what I kind of am passionate about or what I what I love again. So, yeah, come back to Taiwan from one set of islands to another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And spend the next sort of few months traveling around the island, uh, enjoying Taiwan, traveling around Asia as well, going to Thailand, Nepal, doing mountain climbing, trekking rather in the Himalaya. Beautiful. Wow. Amazing. Nice. Uh, and then when I came back shortly afterwards, that's when the whole COVID situation kicked off. Yes. It's a familiar story yeah. for everyone, right? The, the world went to, to cow poop. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so what was that situation like? I know that you are also a gold card holder here in Taiwan. Um, was that part of this calculation? I mean, was that a COVID refugee type of situation like many gold card holders or? Yeah, I mean, kind of, because I was just here on a tourist visa with the idea being like, yeah, you can have a home base in Taiwan, but then just bounce around. And as long as I don't stay longer than 90 days or whatever, then it's all good. I had, yeah, big, big plans for this kind of year off. Taiwan would be the home base, but yeah, having time to work on these kind of passions. And more scuba diving, more photography, also... And a lot of traveling. A lot of traveling. Uh, one of the travel things that I wanted to do was um, go to South Africa to go to a flight school to learn to fly ultralight planes. Oh, really? And so you can learn to fly and fly over these, you know, national parks. And I was like, oh, that's, that's great because that's one of the things that I have enjoyed doing in the past, flying. And I, I wanted to get my ultralight pilot's license. Uh, so that was, that was all going to happen. But uh, yeah, COVID put a quick stop to that. But yeah, I was a tourist visa. 
So when they closed the border, you know, I was kind of getting a bit worried, like, uh-oh, am I going to have to leave this sanctuary? <laughs> um, am I going to have to marry a Taiwanese or, <laughs> or get, a, get a job mm. uh, working for another local company? So that's when I found out about the gold card program. Mm which had already been going for a number of years, but it wasn't very well advertised. Right. So I just came across it like on a forum. Me too. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Forumosa. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Me too. Uh, and I was like, oh, that sounds perfect. So I applied for it, got the gold card, and then that gave me the ability just to live and work here freely. So then after a bit of time, I was like, okay, well, this is a good place to be. Do I want to work for a local company again? Eh, maybe not. Mm -hmm. Given that I've worked in visual effects for animation and visual effects for a number of years, you know, you can go to different places, different companies. There are differences for sure, but a lot of it's kind of like the same. Same sort of deadlines, same sort of pressures, same long hours, mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. So because I wanted to do something different, I kind of had the epiphany or the realization that in order to have something different, I have to do something different. So that led to me starting my own business. Mm. With the gold card, it allowed me to start my company here. Right. So that is uh, Rising Star Creative. That's right. Okay. And what is your goal or dreams for Rising Star Creative? Mm, I have big dreams. Mm. So what I want to do is to take all of the best bits from all of these different companies that I worked at. Uh, because, yeah, working at DreamWorks, there's some really good parts there. Working at Weta, there were some good parts there too. Uh, even DNEG uh, and MPC, you know, there are good parts that, you know, made me who I am today. What if I could leverage that experience and take all those good parts and, and create, you know, a studio, for example, like DreamWorks, to create original Taiwanese animation to that quality level? Mm. That, I think, is my North Star. Mm. So it's a big dream. Hippie dream. I'm a few hundred million dollars short. Okay, so if anyone's listening and yeah. has a couple hundred million extra that they could throw our way here, we greatly appreciate it. Yes, please. Get this off the ground. Uh, so that's kind of where we want to get to, but, you know, step by step. So you, you mentioned that you would like to get Taiwanese animation up to that same level, right? This kind of international level from your experiences at these uh, very famous animation houses around the world. Yep. What is your current take on the animation sector here in Taiwan? Not very big. Not very big. Big, yeah. You know, when you think of Taiwan, you think of, you know, TSMC, you think of bubble tea, beef noodle soup. Uh, you <laughs> might think of Taiwan animation. <laughs> Of uh, the next media type. Okay. <laughs> but, it, you know, it's quality levels a little bit different to, you know, Toy Story. Right. Taiwan animation suffers from, you know, underinvestment mm. in the sector. You know, all, all the money, I think, really goes towards technology. It's not the wrong thing to do. Um, it has put Taiwan on the map. Mm. TSMC, the, the technology sector, is amazing. Mm -hmm. World class. World class, you know, really. Um, but yeah, the creative sector, you know, is, you know. Leaves a little bit to be desired. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> need, need some work. Need some right. work. 
So, you know, not enough investments and there's the, I think, the the mindset as well. So there are, you know, big companies, you know, some, some good companies, you know, in this sector, but they're more like the OEM uh, manufacturing. The Taiwan model the Taiwan that has model. worked very well for Taiwan for so many years and it kind of infiltrates the whole psychology of the country. I mean, in... Right. Uh, in all kinds of business ventures, they kind of put the same model onto it. Yeah. Um, so there's works done by, the name of the studio escapes me, but, you know, they produce some of the DreamWorks animation TV series. Hmm. But it's, you know, they are OEM manufacturing. Hmm. You, know, you wouldn't know of this company uh, unless perhaps you look in the credits or you just know more about the, the industry. But yeah, DreamWorks and, uh, you know, these studios in the West, you know, they come up with the creative ideas and they're the ones that own the IP. And then, you know, mass production is done. Done out here where, again, short deadlines, everything must be done, you know, faster, faster, cheaper, cheaper, mm. cost down. And so, yeah, it's, it's hard for companies like that to go go further, I suppose. So what do you think is... I mean, you mentioned about the animation sector being underfunded, but I feel like just throwing money at the problem, at least in the Taiwan context, wouldn't work as well as in the States, for example. Yep. So what do you think are Taiwan's biggest challenges or where are some opportunities where Taiwan can start to make these you know, first steps to develop into more of a creative powerhouse around the world? So one of the things that I did when I first got the gold card was actually reach out to the universities. So I wanted to get in, uh, get connected with the industry here, you know, develop my connections, develop my, my network and to see how I can help them. You know, I have this experience, knowledge coming from outside that I desperately want to use here to make the situation better mm. and so you've got to start from point zero which is school the universities so i reached out to i think the top 20 universities in my western way which is just send an email cold <laughs> cold calling you know send an email mm. uh in mandarin Mm. Um, and English, but explaining like who I am, you know, I'm a uh, animation visual effects uh, professional. I have all of these years experience, you know, and I want to come in. You've won awards as well. Don't yeah. be humble. Oh, right, right. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> I want to come in and get to know you. You get to know me and I want to help you. Right. Because it all starts off with the students. You know? mm. This sounds great so far. So far, so far, so good. So of these top 20 uh, universities that I contacted, how many do you think even responded? I remember talking about this the first time you came by and I, and I guessed that it was zero. Yep, zero. So can we explain this for people who may not be familiar with Taiwan? Why, why do you think the response was zero? Well, because you know I ha didn't have Guanxi. Mm. I didn't have an existing relationship with them, no, no connection. And society here, you know, is very relationship based. So, yeah, if you don't have that, doesn't matter who you are. 
mm-hmm. uh, you know, you, you, you're just ignored. Mm. And so, you know, this happened and I felt a little bit dismayed, disappointed at the results. But then, yeah, people that I spoke to, they were like, well, yeah, this is Taiwan. <laughs> what can you do? What can you do? So I was very fortunate to meet a fellow Western animation uh, person, uh, Kevin, Mm. who worked at Disney, fellow gold card holder. Yes. You know, I did the Western thing, just sent a message through uh, Facebook, uh, just like, hey. And then he's like, hey, let's meet for coffee, let's meet for dinner. Easy as that. Easy. It's not that difficult. Really, really. Um, and thanks to him, you know, he then introduced me to university. Uh, I got introduced to uh, animation festival. Mm. And then, you know, once those doors are opened, then everything becomes, you know, so much easier because once you have that first step, that connection, then that's another connection to other people and so on and so forth. You know, this past month, uh, I've been down in Tainan and Taichung doing kind of lectures and workshops at uh, different universities. Uh, they're very appreciative and it's it's great for me to get connected with them and, you know, inspire students and help them on their journey as well. Mm. So building up your network, building up Guanxi is possible, but... You know, you need to find, you know, those kind of inroads. Mm-hmm. And it takes time. It a takes lot time. Of time. Right, right. You know, and that's what the gold card is trying to do, right? They're trying to bring high-level talent from around the world to come and help Taiwan in, in areas that Taiwan has identified themselves that they want to improve. But, you know, I've talked to many gold card people, including yourself, and everyone is facing the same problems, right? Because it is Taiwan. So what would you say to the government or what do you think that the government could do better? Because, you know, this is seemingly an intractable or very deep rooted cultural issue. And those things will not change quickly, you know, even if even if people wanted to. So do you see any other ways of kind of speeding up this process? Or do you think there are any possible solutions to uh, foster a more fruitful kind of environment for everyone on both sides? Mm. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, money, money goes a long way. <laughs> money always helps. <laughs> I think having just more money available, mm. more funding available to help develop this, this kind of sector, mm. you know, to help develop the gold card program to help people that come start businesses here. You know, it's like, come with your expertise to Taiwan, start your business. Oh, that's great. Okay. But then when you get here, then, you know, there's, you know, not so much help available. Mm. Um, Or if there is help, it's kind of not so easy to get. Mm a lot of, lot of hoops you got to jump through. Mm-hmm. And just starting a business here is a pain in the ass. Yeah, it's not easy. Especially if your Chinese skills aren't up to par. Mm-hmm. And uh, But even if you have a partner who is Taiwanese, even if you have friends who are Taiwanese, even if you speak Chinese, there's still a lot of uh, hurdles to, to overcome. Yeah, it's a problem that they are aware of and apparently they're working to address. But to start a business here, like to start mine, took like four months. And half of that time was applying for 
permission to bring investment into Taiwan. So it's kind of, it's, a, it's an interesting situation of like, come to Taiwan, bring your, your skills here, start a business. Oh, but it's going to take a long time. Right. You know? Once you come and apply and then it's like, okay, so who are you? Yeah, what is your background? You? Why do you want to bring money? To <laughs> Why do you want to invest here? Why are you trying to help us? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's interesting. I'm sure they have reasons for making it difficult uh, or, you know, being suspicious. But surely, you know, people aren't bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, to start their business. One would think that a reasonable cap, uh, a reasonable, you know, limit that if you're investing or starting the business, you know, less than that, then it's just like, yeah, well, you know, that's not a lot of money. We don't care about that. Uh, and they, they, they would only care if you're bringing in, you know, a lot more money. Those things, I think, would, would definitely help. Mm. Um, one of the suggestions that I've made is like some sort of a matchmaking service to help connect people with maybe sectors that they want to connect with so you know we do animation you know if i reach out to companies that i think might need animation you know i'm very likely to get the same kind of response which will be like yeah, nothing no response. <laughs> yeah some sort of a matchmaking kind of service because if you're a, you know, a business and you get an, an email from the government, you know, you, you're probably going to at least read it mm. rather than hit delete. Right. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Unless you're trying to run away from those emails. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, my, my background is education. So that is something that I'm very passionate about. What do you think about the education system insofar as it kind of leads to this creative potential or flourishing in Taiwan? So this is actually sort of quite interesting. Like I, I've gone into lots of universities now and uh, met a lot of students. There is often actually a surprising amount of creativity there. You know, they they're really encouraged to be creative, especially in the the, the the animation part. You know, I've seen like these animations, and you know, my mind is is kind of blown. It's just like, wow, this is really creative. Hmm. It's often very dark. Um, <laughs> So it's either cute or dark. Yeah, yeah. I guess you know students are always encouraged to develop things that they that they know. You know, I guess a, a lot of people are very dark, you know? <laughs> very dark these days. So you know, there's these animations and they're dealing with you know depression and suicide and murder, and it's like, okay, I, creative. Yeah, it's creative. It's very creative. <laughs> uh, but it's like I did not expect that. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely creativity. I think it would benefit for it to be channeled into productive ways. Mm. You know, when I'm looking for kind of new uh, recruits, you know, new staff, you know, I put up an, an ad on 104. Mm, yeah. And job hunting site. Job hunting site. And, you know, sadly, the vast majority of applicants, are they'll submit with their showreel. And it's like, is this what you were able to create in, you know, three or four years? It's kind of, you know, concerning. It's worrying. You know? mm. this, is, this is where, you know, I want to help develop mm -hmm. things like that. When I look back on my own work in university, especially in my, my undergrad, oh, it was terrible. <laughs> yeah, it was atrocious. <laughs> really. <laughs> 
but I also didn't know what I was doing. So I was literally just like jabbing buttons at random and just seeing what happened. <laughs> so, you know, it shows that I didn't know what I was doing. Then I went on and did a master's degree, spent more time with, uh, you know, good teachers, had more time to learn and everything else. Uh, and, you know, my work improved, you know, for these people that have gone to university to do animation for four years and they, they end up with something. It's like, I don't even know where to start with that. I don't know where the problem is. You know, maybe you're not cut out for animation, mm. maybe, but maybe it could be fixed with better training, better or focused focus training mm. you know i've gone in done some workshops with the universities i've been sort of quite impressed with what the students have been able to create mm. often in just like two days mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you know it's like well you know i think i think you have potential and i would love to come in and spend you know weeks and months i think we could do some really cool stuff together <laughs> and you would have some really cool stuff to show right and so it's really heartening for me when uh like the feedback that i've had was we learned more in these past two days than we have all semester yeah sometimes my whole life yeah yeah and you know i'm just like i'm like oh you know cool you know you you guys can like bring me back again (laughs) right uh speaking to that what about education so i i know you have a, a company and you have very big dreams about this i think we're touching around this a lot and the this is a theme that has come up every single episode just very naturally which is the problem of education here in taiwan so do you think that your ability to do good might be better served in education in the university or or lower uh, in helping to develop those things or do you think that by starting a company and by creating this pathway a professional pathway for these young people that you can kind of attract those ones who you know have gotten through the system despite in spite of the system uh, in spite of the flaws in the system what do you think from you know kind of your perch you know being interested in education but also of course in trying to develop something world-class you know, I, I you know, do want to get in and spend more time uh, with students uh, developing the education side of things here. And I think, yeah, there's a long way to go. It's not only, I think, changing the way that they teach things, but maybe just changing a whole mindset mm-hmm. as well. Mm. A mindset about taking risks. Yes. Um, trying new things. Even, even just asking questions. Because you look at some of these like famous schools around the world. Uh, I went to Bournemouth University, which has the National Centre for Computer Animation. So that's one of the best places in the UK to do computer animation. Mm. You know, it attracts not only good students, but they're, you know, very motivated. The teaching there is good and supportive as well. And so the work that people achieve is often amazing. And they they are more than ready to join industry and be producing great work straight away. Mm. And then you look at all these other kind of famous schools around the world, Goblin and SCAD and uh, others. Yeah, they they do good, good stuff. Yeah, maybe having like a dedicated school, you know, where we can like make this the big famous place to do animation in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. That can be a really good start. Maybe, yeah, it means creating more internships uh, or like an academy or something just to develop 
people and those skills. So in general, I think the best people, you know, that I've met have also been those kind of like self-starters. And they're the sort of people that education is is more than just getting, you know, the certificate, mm. the grades. Yes. Uh, and and they, they're the ones that are pushing themselves every day and learning new things and really developing. Mm. And those guys, you know, really are good. Sometimes they stay in Taiwan and work for these, you know, good companies. And sometimes they'll, you know, go to New Zealand and America. And so, you know, I, I've worked with you know, really smart, talented Taiwanese all over the place. Mm. So speaking with them, you know, they always felt like, they also needed to leave Taiwan to have those opportunities. You know, if you want to do world-class, you know, DreamWorks type animation, you know, can't really do that here. You have to go out into the world. Have to go out into the world. And going back to, you know, my story, you know, there's pros and cons, you know, for doing that. Right. So that was one of the reasons behind my thinking of like, well, what if we could create something like that here? Mm. And, you know, I can't do that by myself. Mm -hmm. I'm going to need the support of the whole industry. Um, billionaires. Billionaires would help. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's, not a, it's not a big industry, you know, for one. You know, I, I think the industry also, I hope, supports this idea as well. Mm. Hopefully that they wouldn't be against, you know, developing together something like that. Mm. Mm. And they're not, you know, kind of trying to erect barriers and everything else. Right. So so I talked to a lot of young kids who are very confused about their life, their future. Um, I think this is common all around the world, but I think it's particularly uh, strong here in Taiwan. Um, so what would you say to young Taiwanese who maybe are, you know, kind of exploring their options for the future? What do you think makes a good animator or what kind of person do you think should or could pursue a career in this field? Uh, I think someone that just really enjoys creating, but is also self-aware enough to know, you know, what I'm creating could be better and it needs to be better. So not just to stay at this level, but keep progressing. And that requires a lot of kind of self-reflection and risk taking, like risk, you said yeah, before. Yeah. Yeah. And pushing those boundaries. Yeah. One of the things that yeah kind of made me kind of a bit sad was when I came the first time, you know, I had a big team that I was looking after. You know, I would try to have things like uh, a week, get together weekly uh, where we can, you know, share the problems we've been working on together so we can all learn from each other. We can ask questions, you know, from each other. And you can ask questions of me as well. Mm. You know, my door is always open, but we can have a, a dedicated time where you can also, we can, we can learn about stuff. Mm. So it becomes like, you know, what areas don't you know about that I can use my knowledge to help fill? So who wants to learn about X, X or Y? Can I get a show of hands? <laughs> and of course, no hands go up. No hands, again. No, hands. no email replies, no hands. It's a common theme here. It's a common theme. So there's the whole thing, and I guess it, part of it comes through education as well, about not standing out. Yes. I think people are kind of afraid to look like they don't know. Yeah, it's the means, it's the face. It's a losing face losing as well. Losing face, yeah. yeah. 
And, and that, that's kind of a big, big problem because it's only through acknowledging things that we don't know that we can find find what gaps we need to fill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. But we have to have that mindset or that potential to be able to do that, right? Yeah. Mm. And, and, you know, not to be afraid to kind of put your hand up or to say, I don't know. Right. Or, you know, can you explain that? I don't understand. All of these things are not a problem. So despite all these seemingly gloomy aspects of uh, starting a, a very uh, ambitious project here in Taiwan, or at least having these ambitious ideas and goals and dreams, right? Um, so why? Why still do it? Why still stick with it? Why Taiwan? Why Taiwan? Yeah, why, why still do it? Uh, I, I'm a, a masochist, perhaps, yeah. I've used that word quite a few times since being here. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I'm very stubborn, I think, you know, I, once I kind of maybe set my, my, my focus on something, then, then it's like, you know, oh, I'm going to get, gonna get it. I'm going to get it. Uh, even if it kills me. Mm. So, um, but I think that attitude is so important, right? I mean, that attitude of like just facing, it's that idea that we're talking about, about risk, right? It's like facing embarrassment and facing, facing failure, facing all of these things, all of these obstacles, these challenges, these difficult times, but just facing it and, and running head on into it, right? With that confidence that you will be able to figure it out, or at least you'll be able to learn from it and grow. Yes, yeah. So, so even when you know things don't go quite according to plan, if you can use that as a learning experience, then then it's still valuable because it's it's like oh I didn't I didn't know that or yeah that shouldn't have happened. And, but if you can put in place procedures or you know ways to compensate for that next time, then next time things will hopefully be better. Mm. So yeah, why why is Taiwan though? Yeah, I mean, I like Taiwan. To me, it's like a very safe and you know gentle normally very pleasant when it's not pouring with rain this is not the six months of rainy season <laughs> um yeah kind of place so you know that to me helps it feel very homely mm. um my my mandarin still sucks but you know if people have that connection with you you know then people often go out their way to help you and and that's sort of really endearing mm. yeah i i think you know people do see you know i'm i'm not here to kind of cut down others to be to come in and be like you know i'm the hollywood guy and you know you're doing it all wrong mm. you know i'm not like that you know i i want to be more constructive and be like you know yes i do have these knowledge and experience and everything else and awards awards <laughs> uh a couple Mm -hmm. um and and i want to i want to use that mm. i want to i want to use it to, to to make a difference that shouldn't take away from what others are doing it should just add to it exactly that's the ideal right mm. that's what we're all aiming for yeah hmm. so what are your maybe top five goals for the next you know Five, five or ten years down the line, I guess learning Mandarin learning is Mandarin well. one of them. Uh, creating the DreamWorks of Taiwan is number two, or maybe that's number one. And yeah. then learning Chinese is number two. Any other big kind of uh, dreams or goals or uh, things that you want to kind of check off that list while you are here? 
I would say like buy a house, but then, you know, it's kind of expensive here. Yeah, it's kind of like the New Zealand that we were talking about. You have to put down a couple million dollars for uh, not a very big or nice house. Yeah, so so this is one of the things that has definitely kind of played into my story is kind of like maybe looking for stability. This is one of the things with, with Taiwan is I feel like this is a real good opportunity to create that kind of stable environment that I also want. So that's, you know, kind of putting down roots. Maybe property is part of that. So doing something more than just like renting. Right. So maybe that involves getting, you know, some land down in Kending by the sea and then building a little house or something. That'll be nice. Yeah. That'd be cool. Or, you know, some other beautiful place in, in Taiwan away from the mosquitoes. That's hard. Yeah. <laughs> Are there any places like that? Please let me know. <laughs> yeah, like maybe, yeah, just being like more of an inspiration to these kind of like next generation of uh, students here so that they can feel like, you know, they can achieve their dreams. Right. They can achieve what, what they want to achieve. This kind of plays back into how it was at like Next Media. So I saw such good potential of the people there, but it felt like, you know, for them, it didn't matter how hard they would work. It didn't make a difference. Mm. It didn't mean any more money. It didn't mean a way to sort of improve their life. It's just, you know, more, more work. So I think for, for many of them, it was just like, do the bare minimum and then, you know, survive, you know, put up with it, dream about the weekend. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's kind of a, uh, that's not a good way to create your future. You know, part of this is, you know, if we can create something where people feel like they can have an impact, that their work matters, that, you know, the more that they put in, the more that they get out, then, uh, yeah, everyone benefits. Right. So. That's quite revolutionary. Sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So finally, what about uh, if there are any young aspiring animators or uh, people interested in the creative industries, how could they find you, reach out to you? And what kind of people will your company be looking for? What is an ideal type of person? What kind of skills should these young people kind of make sure that they have? Maybe that you've seen lacking in all of these kind of resumes or interviewing people that, you know, you're thinking, why don't people have these skills? Or I wish they could do this or, you know, something like that. Certainly people can reach me. Our website is risingstarcreative.com. My IG is nomad underscore monkey uh because yeah uh, i've been a nomad kind of person uh and my girlfriend says i look like a monkey so <laughs> kind of works yeah what kind of people yeah people who are i guess very driven uh, or dedicated uh that have good skills but also are creative the ideal kind of person would be someone who comes in the next day and be like look look what i made you know and it doesn't have to be you know lord of the rings or something it could just be something just really cute and really kind of just nice hmm. that you can look at and go that's cool 
Mm. I like that. That's really good. Let's do something with that. That's that's like the the the, the ideal. Mm. Um, and there's there's definitely people out there mm. in the world like that. You get on, you know, uh, Instagram. Do a search for I don't know, three D. And you know, people are just putting out their creations there all the time. Mm. Uh, and you know, often they're still in school and self-taught, and it's really good. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's like, damn, yeah. So you know. People that have the skills, the the creativity, and even if you don't have the skills, have like the awareness that like, yeah, you know, I don't have it, but I know the things that I want to get good at and to be that kind of autodidact kind Mm, of person. Self-learner. Self-learner because there's so much you have to learn uh, because animation touches upon so many different fields. You know, there's the modeling, there's the animation, there's the simulation, there's the cinematography. Uh, there's so many parts that help to make a good animation or a good image. And some of that stuff is maybe harder to teach. Maybe you have it, maybe you don't. But uh, I think you can you can do a lot just through practice and uh, self-learning improvement. And yeah, there's so many good resources out there to learn from. You go on uh, YouTube, do a search for Blender. So many great tutorials to learn from. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's a university at your fingertips. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And what would you say to those who doubt their own creative potential? Because I hear this a lot as well. So I'm not creative. I can't be creative. I, I hate creative things because there's no correct answer. I've heard that as well many times here. So what would you say about how people can improve their creativity or maybe what is your kind of idea or definition of creativity? Yeah, I think you can definitely improve through practice through through study and practice and and finding resources that can kind of teach you funnily enough i still have these voices as well you know Mm. um where i'm like oh you know i can't do x i can't do y like my i feel like my drawing skills suck i'm very much a right-brained kind of person so logical kind of you know technical i do programming and things like that or left brain people you know tell them stuff about programming and they'll be like oh run away scary mm. uh, and it shouldn't be like that but then they might be very good at drawing and and for me you know i feel like my drawing skills are kind of suck that's also a terrible thing to tell yourself because that's just a barrier that you are putting up that just stops you from even trying you know so i've been doing things like practicing getting books to help learn there's a very good book called drawing with the right side of the brain oh interesting Mm. and just by working my way through the book you know i've noticed an improvement in my ability my skills Mm. And if anything, you know, it's teaching you not to maybe sketch or draw from from up here, but, but rather through through your through your eyes. Mm. Draw draw what you see. Like what do you see? And don't overthink it. Don't overthink it because you know so much of what we I think what we're good at are things that we have practiced, mm. and perhaps things that we've practiced are just things that we have enjoyed. So those that are really good at drawing, well, they, they enjoyed it when they were young and just did it every day. Put in those 10,000 hours or more. Exactly. So, yeah, you can get good at anything, anything. Like, I, 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 I really believe that. Mm. But it, it does require the, the practice 
and you know dedication and finding ways to like you know make it fun and enjoyable putting behind that critical voice and just you know creating just for the the fun of it and if it doesn't look good well you know uh, it doesn't matter do it again tomorrow Mm -hmm. and the next day and so you have all these artists out there um that they have daily practice like people Mm. (laughs) right you know who's nft uh, billionaire yeah (laughs) Uh, and you know he would produce a piece of art you know every single day you know that's that's pretty cool you know you get to really flex your creative muscle because every day you create something new Mm. i think people's a great story as well because he toiled in the underground for many many years and his timing was kind of perfect right with this new revolution and nfts and other kind of things and then just suddenly at the right place at the right time but early on in his career he would never have been able to know where this was going right that he would suddenly become uh you know selling these things that he loved to do just doing them every single day that he could sell each piece for a million dollars plus right yeah yeah so you never know you never know what might happen in the future if you just work hard and go after something that you're passionate about yeah and the 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 barriers for entry are really just getting lower and lower there's many many lifetimes worth of teaching material on youtube uh produced every every day i think every week you know computers you know are not necessarily cheap things but you don't necessarily need the latest and greatest if you get a machine that's a few years old then that is still very, very, very capable. Much of the software, many, many of the, the software you can use uh, is free or low cost. And things like uh, Unreal, yeah, you don't have to pay for. Their license is when you start earning, I think, over like a million dollars from software sales, like if you make a game with it, then you pay a portion of those uh, sales. Hmm, 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 hmm. So what you're saying is there are no excuses. No excuses. No excuses. Yeah, anything is possible. Really? really? Right. Yeah, the world is your oyster. Your world is your oyster. And, you know, for better or for worse, you know, we are in a globally competitive environment. And so we have to stand out. Mm. We have to do more in in order to stand out. Right. And we got to just take that into our own hands yep right nice that is a wonderful message i think to end it on um i really you know appreciate you coming in and sharing your story if there are any young creative people out there some uh aspiring animators or experienced animators you know how to get hold of uh chris here um so please do reach out any billionaires as well who want to uh create a animation studio that is world class based in taiwan chris is your guy to talk to um so hopefully we can make these dreams happen right there we go yeah yeah and together we can all be rising stars Beautiful. Rising stars and creative. Yeah. Beautiful. (laughs) All right. Thank you very much, Chris. And I look forward to seeing you and talking to you again as well. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Peace.